Hello, welcome to Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan here in Victoria, BC. In this program, we all discover jazz old and new together. We'll listen to a wide variety of jazz styles and I'll present different topics, giving ideas as to what we can listen for to enhance our experience. Thanks to Peterborough Independent Podcasters for hosting this podcast. For the next 60 minutes, Discovering Jazz. It's part three of the Time Life Giants of Jazz series. These uh, 28 three-record sets put out in the late 70s and early 80s, it featured some of the earliest jazz innovators, those who have so influenced where jazz is today. And those 50-page booklets with biographical material and musical notes were incredible. I've already talked about, in parts one and two, Louis Armstrong, Bessie Smith, Duke Ellington, Joe Sullivan, Johnny Dodds, Buddy Berrigan, Billie Holiday, Benny Goodman, Big Spider Beck, Art Tatum, Frank Teschmacher, and a touch of Coleman Hawkins. I also threw in two Canadian artists who aren't part of that series, but were influential in the history of jazz, Guy Lombardo and Oscar Peterson. This week, continuing with Coleman Hawkins. Last program, I played his classic rendition of Body and Soul, which has been credited with turning the saxophone into an artist's tool. Coleman Hawkins was one of the most creative early jazz men ever, right from the age of 18. He never repeated choruses he had played before, but continued to improvise never-heard-before sound patterns. Before Hawkins, the saxophone was mostly a novelty instrument or used in marching bands. Coleman Hawkins's his earliest influences was a pianist that we heard last week, Art Tatum. He heard Tatum in 1926. Hawkins was 22 and Tatum was only 16. And he was so impressed by how Tatum would use the harmonic underpinning of a tune rather than its melody as the basis for improvisation. And Coleman Hawkins adapted that style for his tenor saxophone. Here is a recording that he made with the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra in 1933, six years before his classic Body and Soul. There is still his emphasis on the harmony rather than the melody, but in this solo, he was reported to have arrived at a compromise between the two. The Fletcher Henderson Orchestra with Coleman Hawkins on tenor sax is the talk of the town.
One more from Coleman Hawkins, who died in 1967. After fading into obscurity for a while, he had a revival in the late 50s. And here's a recording made with one of his students, the great Ben Webster, from October 1957. It's a tune that Hawkins concocted, maybe with Webster. And you can really see the distinction between Coleman Hawkins' tenor sax solo, he takes the first long solo, lean, sometimes harsh, with chip phrases and crash notes, versus the Ben Webster solo that follows, lyrical and romantic. Also on this recording is Oscar Peterson on piano, Herb Ellis, guitar, Ray Brown bass, and Alvin Stoller drums. It's called Maria, Ben Webster, and Coleman Hawkins. Thank you. 
Ben Webster and Coleman Hawkins' record from 1957 makes an easy segue from Coleman Hawkins to Ben Webster, who is featured in Volume 21 of the Time Life Giants of Jazz series. Ben Webster played tenor saxophone in a lot of bands, from Fletcher Henderson in the 30s, Duke Ellington in the 40s, and he was always known for playing with great feeling. He was a very emotional man, sweet and sensitive or loving and tender at times, boisterous at other times, and often, especially when drunk, the barroom bully who could be quite scary. He was best known for his beautiful tone, the famous whisper, where he would coat each note with a gentle breath of air. Since in part two, when I talked about Art Tatum, I only played one Art Tatum track, finding a track by the Art Tatum Ben Webster Quartet was a good way to make up for that. And according to Gus Metzarkis, Webster's biographer, in the 56-page booklet that's part of this Time Life 3 record set of Ben Webster, it was in the 1950s that it all came together. Tone, technique, and feeling all blended to evolve from a style into a voice. Metzarkis defined such a voice as being when every note a performer plays is indistinguishable from himself. Unquote. This recording is from 1956. The Art Tatum Ben Webster Quartet with Red Calendar on bass and Bill Douglas on drums. The tune is called My Ideal.
Art Tatum and Ben Webster. Next, moving to volume 22, Bill Count Basie, the swingingest band leader of all time, and he also developed a unique piano style. When I first had these Time Life Giants of Jazz records delivered to my door, one every couple months from the late 1970s through the early 80s, I listened to them closely, read the booklets, and put check marks by the selections that most grabbed me. Looking at the Count Basie set, there were lots of check marks, but one of them had two check marks, and it wasn't even the whole band. This one does, however, illustrate how the bassy sound was built on rhythm, first and foremost. And the musicians who made a huge contribution were guitarist Freddie Green and drummer Joe Jones, who were with him throughout most of his career, from the 1930s and through the 50s, and for Green, even into the 80s. This selection is a very rare quartet recording from 1938, with Joe Jones, Freddie Green, Walter Page on string bass, and Count Basie's sparse and unique piano. How Long, How Long Blues, from November Yes, it's fascinating how Count Basie could dominate through sparseness. He reduced the role of the left hand, and by doing so, emphasized the importance of the band's rhythm section. This might have been because Count Basie's first instrument as a kid was drums. You'll hear that emphasis on rhythm in this next recording, the classic one o'clock jump from July 7th, 1937. It came about as a result of Basie fooling around at a club, riffing in the key of F, then yelling he was going to switch to D-flat. Alto saxophonist Buster Smith claims that he then started playing the opening reed riff, and the others just started improvising, and the result was an unwritten arrangement that just grew. 
Even the title was improvised, as it was originally called Blue Balls. Then, one day during a radio broadcast, the announcer needed to know the name of the closing tune. It was clear they couldn't call it by its real name over the radio. I glanced up at the clock, Basie said. It was almost one o'clock. Just call it one o'clock jump, I told the announcer. It features great solos by tenor saxophonist Lester Young, trumpeter Buck Clayton, and Basie himself. And you get a few riffs by two musicians who, along with a rhythm section, really defined a lot of Basie's sound. It was the pairing of two tenor saxophonists, Lester Young with his light tone and the rich resonance of Herschel Evans. They primarily here just play riffs as a duet. Here is Count Basie and his orchestra and one o'clock jump. Staying with pianists, next I'll introduce you to Jelly Roll Morton. 
and the three-record set comprising Volume 7 of Time Life's Giants of Jazz series. Because of his exaggerated bragging, it's hard to say just how much Jelly Roll Morton really contributed to the development of jazz. In 1940, he made claims that all the styles of jazz are Jelly Roll style. It's really his stuff that others are playing. Duke Ellington, on the other hand, stated that Jelly Roll played piano like one of those high school teachers in Washington. As a matter of fact, high school teachers played better jazz. But it is true that Jelly Roll Morton is recognized as the first creator of form in jazz and probably the first real jazz composer and arranger. And he was quite the entertainer as well. He was black, born in 1885 in the midst of a very musical black New Orleans and claims to have created jazz in 1902. He wasn't a drinker or a druggie, but was always scrounging for money, some of that due to bad luck and some of it due to difficulties in getting along with people. He died in 1941 of heart trouble and asthma. Here's a tune that he wrote in 1902 that's still often played by New Orleans groups. It's a piano solo by Jelly Roll Morton, recorded in 1926, King Porter Stomp. Thank you. 
Later in 1935, the Benny Goodman Orchestra had a hit with that tune, and in 1937 it became the vehicle for Dizzy Gillespie's very first recorded jazz solo, where he was part of the Teddy Hill NBC Orchestra. Here is that recording of uh, Jelly Roll Morton's King Porter Stomp. been a few tunes by Jelly Roll Morton that are commonly played by old-style jazz and blues orchestras, as well as occasionally by contemporary jazz artists. There's Wolverine Blues, which is definitely a standard, Black Bottom Stomp, Wine and Boy Blues, and many others. And a few of them have been recorded by Jack T. Garden. And I thought I had a wonderful segue into the next Time Life volume, number eight, featuring T. Garden. But 
Alas, none of those Jelly Roll Morton tunes are on that particular three-record set. But I'll go ahead anyway and talk about Jack Teagarden. He's kind of special to me and my formative years as a jazz listener. It was January 1964, and I was 15, listening to my favorite radio station, CJCA in Edmonton, with its Top 93 of Pop Hits, and it was announced that a trombonist and singer named Jack Teagarden had died. I had never heard of him. And even though it was not a jazz station, they interrupted their regular programming and played an hour of Jack Teagarden, and I fell in love. My music listening has never been the same. In describing Jack Teagarden's sound, musicologist Leonard Gatridge states that he was so adapted to his instrument that it sounds like he and the trombone had been invented at the same time. Saxophonist Jerry Mulligan said that Teagarden had everything a great jazz musician needs to have. A beautiful sound, a wonderful melodic sense, a deep feeling, a swinging beat, and the ability to make everything sound relaxed and easy. See what you think. Here he is with the Benny Goodman Orchestra from 1934, starting with him playing some trombone fills over the ensemble melody, and then a solo on the first bridge. Moonglow.
playing along with T. Garden on trombone and Benny Goodman on clarinet was Teddy Wilson on piano, Hank Ross tenor sax, and Charlie T. Garden, Jack's brother, on trumpet. Now for a Jack T. Garden classic. T. Garden's vocals were as significant as his trombone playing, and he did sing on most of his recordings. This one here is one of his best known. From 1934, Stars Fell on Alabama. The notes on the tune written by John S. Wilson are fascinating. He talks about how this tune should not have really worked. It didn't have much of Tea Garden's trombone. The lyrics were insipid and prone to parody, rhyming Alabama with glamour and hammer. And the principal instrumental part was given over to a harp played by Casper Reardon. But it works beautifully and became a huge hit. Let's give a listen. Moonlight and magnolia Starlight in your hair All the world a dream come true Did it really happen? Was I really there? Was I really there with you? We lived our little drama We kissed in a field of white and the stars fell on Alabama last night. I can't forget the glamour. Your eyes held a tender light. And stars fell on Alabama last night. I never planned in my imagination A situation so heavenly A fairyland where no one else could enter And in the center, just you and me, dear My heart beats like a hammer My arms wound around you tight and stars fell on Alabama last night. I never planned imagination a situation so heavenly a fairyland where no one else could enter and you in the center just you and me dear my heart beats like a hammer my arms wound around you tight and stars fell on Alabama last night. While Jack Teagarden was white, he never missed an opportunity to play with black jazz musicians, and he was admired by both black and white musicians and was known for his generosity and modesty. Let's have one more tune. We're hearing a track from 1947 that he recorded with Louis Armstrong. It's called... Jack Armstrong Blues. 
well, I'll take four bars, you play forever me. Not Now I'm going to go somewhere very different. I've been featuring Time Life's Giants of Jazz series, and of course there are no Canadians featured in this series. And for each of these programs, I find one Canadian who could be seen as being a jazz giant. For this one, I'll present somebody I didn't even know was Canadian. He wasn't really a musician in the sense of being known for any kind of technical proficiency on any particular instrument, but what he was was one of the greatest orchestrators in jazz, and very much involved in the development of cool jazz, modal jazz, and what is known as third stream music, that combination of classical and jazz. I'm talking about Gil Evans, not the pianist Bill Evans, but Gil with a G, Evans. Most people know him as the arranger of some of Miles Davis's classic uh, recordings, such as uh, Sketches of Spain and the now-called Birth of the Cool Sessions. He was born in Toronto in 1912, but lived mostly in Washington State, California, then New York. His first forays into musical prominence was with the Claude Thornhill Orchestra, and his arrangements were so complex that Thornhill at first would present them to band members as a form of punishment. I had heard a few recordings of the Claude Thornhill Band and was curious to discover some that were definitely Gil Evans' arrangements. You're listening to a Thornhill composition called Snowfall that Gil Evans arranged and orchestrated. (laughs) ¶¶ 
I think that's lovely and interesting. Claude Thornhill with the Gil Evans arrangement from 1947, Snowfall. Gil Evans was no question a jazz giant, even if it's not the same concept of jazz that comes to mind for most of us when we think of the term. But Miles Davis does come to mind. Evans had a small furnished basement in New York for two years that became a drop-in place for fellow musicians, composers, and theorists to hang out and swap ideas. He says, I never knew who was going to be there when I got home, and I didn't care. Regulars were Jerry Mulligan, who ended up moving in permanently, Lee Connitz, George Russell and John Lewis, and Charlie Parker, who mostly came to sleep and was often accompanied by Miles Davis. In 1948, um, Evans and Miles Davis formed the Nonet, a group of nine musicians, including a French horn, trombone, tuba, trumpet, alto and baritone sax, plus a rhythm section. What happened next has been an important part of the history of jazz. They cut a dozen studio sides for Capitol Records, and there were also a number of radio broadcasts, all of which were remastered and reissued on Blue Note Records. Here's one called Boplicity, composed by Miles Davis and Gil Evans and arranged by Gil Evans.
Gil Evans later did put out a few albums of very experimental jazz, some of it similar to what is called free jazz. But let's finish today's Discovering Jazz program with one more jazz giant who is part of that Time Life series. Volume 25 is all about soprano saxophonist Sidney Bechet. Biographer Frank Kapler argues that Bechet, a child prodigy, was the first musician to take jazz beyond the group effort and stand out as a soloist. Here's the first Bechet recording ever issued from 1923, Wildcat Blues. That is mighty amazing for 1923. Bechet's soprano sax really stands out. Quite astounding, I think, and it takes me by surprise. 
Bechet moved to France in 1950, where he lived and continued playing to the end of his life. He died in 1959 of lung cancer. I'm finishing today's program with a Bechet track recorded in Paris, December 8, 1954. And I'll say goodbye, reminding you to tune in next week when I'm going to have a special guest and we're going to be talking about some new jazz vocal discoveries and this guest that this guest has turned me on to. And uh, we will be continuing with the Time Life series in the near future. The last tune today is called Astu la Cafard. I think it means, have you the cockroach? Céline Bechet with Claude Luther and his orchestra. You've been listening to Discovering Jazz coming your way thanks to Peterborough Independent Podcasters and Apple Podcasts. This is Larry Sademan saying bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>